preach to you from this thought, my return policy. And uh, hopefully it'll make sense by the end of it. If not, then um, it won't. But I want us to pray tonight that the Lord would move and touch in our hearts, that he would anoint my lips, anoint our ears, that we can hear his voice tonight. Lord Jesus, we come before you so thankful to be here in your presence tonight, gathered with each other. And Lord, we know there's strength, there's encouragement, Lord, there's there's truth that's found as we gather together and hear your word and ask you, Lord, that you would anoint my lips, anoint our ears tonight to receive your word, God, that we can leave this place transformed because we've been in your presence, we've heard your word. Lord, we give you praise, we give you glory, we give you honor tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this evening. In 1911, there was an avid outdoorsman named Leon Leonwood Bean. That's an odd name. Parents are lacking for a little creativity when they call you Leon Leonwood Bean. (laughs) But he was an avid outdoorsman, and uh, uh, one day in 1911, he had returned from a hunting trip with cold, damp feet. And a revolutionary idea in his mind. L.L. enlisted a local cobbler to stitch leather uppers to his workman's rubber boots. And he created a comfortable, functional boot for exploring the Maine woods where he lived. (coughs) This innovative boot called the Maine Hunting Shoe, he's real creative with the title too. It changed outdoor footwear forever and began one of the most successful family-run businesses in the country. L.L. began his business in the basement of his brother's apparel shop. In 1912, he obtained a mailing list of non-resident Maine hunting license holders, and he prepared a three-page flyer that boldly proclaimed, you cannot expect success hunting deer or moose if your feet are not properly dressed. The Maine hunting shoe is designed by a hunter who has trampled the Maine woods for the last 18 years. We guarantee them to give perfect satisfaction in every way. The public couldn't resist the common sense logic. Here was a guy who had done it, who'd hunted for 18 years, and he had designed these shoes, and there was a genuine enthusiasm created because of it. (coughs) 100 orders came in for his new product. However, LL did not meet with immediate success. The rubber bottoms of the shoes separated from the leather tops, and 90 of those first 100 pairs were returned. (laughs) that's not too good although it nearly put him out of business LL kept his word and refunded the purchase price of all 90 pairs he borrowed more money corrected the problem and with undiminished confidence he mailed more brochures LL had learned the value of personally testing his products of honest advertising based on firm convictions and of keeping the customer satisfied at any cost Customers spread the word of L.L. Bean's quality and service. L.L. built on his success using all company profits for advertising. He was so intent on building his mailing list that his, his friend and writer, resident John Gold, was inspired to say, if you drop in just to shake L.L.'s hand, you'll get home and find his catalog is already in your mailbox. L.L. focused on the essentials. High quality products backed by excellent service. I think this pulpit's lower than the one that we use on Sunday. 
Or maybe I need bifocals. Feels like a long way down here right now. <laughs> but LL focused on the essentials. High quality products backed by excellent service. Leon Gorman, the grandson of LL and company president, later on said word of mouth advertising and customer satisfaction were critical to LL's way of thinking. To hear that one of his products failed was a genuine shock to his system. That customer was a real person to LL, and he'd put his trust in the LL Bean product. When LL Bean started his company, his view of serving the customer was as revolutionary as his product. He said, a customer is the most important person ever in this office, in person or by mail. Whether seeking expert advice, purchasing goods, returning or exchanging anything from L.L. Bean, customers quickly learned that L.L. Bean wasn't like other companies of the day. In fact, L.L. set the standard for customer service in 1912, and his service-based philosophy is a fundamental belief that still resonates in the company today. With automobiles increasing in popularity and becoming more affordable throughout the 1920s, more people visited Maine to enjoy the recreation, hunting, and fishing. Through all this, LL continued to attract those hunting, camping, and fly fishermen customers with his trusted advice and common sense approach. In, in a 1927 catalog, he said, it is no longer necessary for you to experiment with dozens of flies to determine the few that will catch fish. We have done that experimenting for you. Steady growth continued, and by 1934, the company had increased its factory size to over 13,000 square feet. The Simple Flyer evolved into a 52-page catalog. The company generated over 70% of the volume for the Freeport Post Office. By 1937, sales had surpassed the $1 million mark. Leon Gorman noted decades later, the most important legacy of LL's genius was the power of his personality. It transcended the buying and selling of products. His personal charisma based on down-home honesty, a true love for the outdoors, and a genuine enthusiasm for people inspired all who worked for him and attracted a fanatic loyalty among his customers. LL never missed an opportunity to improve service. While the bulk of sales were generated by the catalog, hunters and visitors frequently dropped by Freeport. A night bell allowed the night visitor to call a watchman or even LL himself at any hour of the day. In 1951, LL opened the store. This is in 51. He opened the store 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, proclaiming, we have thrown away the keys to this place. To this day, there are no locks on the doors of the flagship store in Freeport. LL Bean now reports earnings as of last year of over $1.6 billion annually. How many of you ever heard of the, of the company LL Bean? Ever heard of that? It's an interesting story, the backstory to L.L. Bean, the store. Yet, it's not the store's great homespun history that makes you feel like he's just a common everyday guy, which he was. It created something really out of nothing, out of his own personal need to meet the needs of millions of people. But that's, it's not really that that makes L.L. Bean so famous today. Rather, there's something else that L.L. Bean is very famous for, which you may or may not know about. It is the store's famous return policy. How many ever heard of L.L. Bean's return policy? Anyone? It's so famous, see? 
But it was implemented by L.L. Bean himself. In fact, it was mentioned near the start of reading that, that made the store what it is today and has increased its fame greater than really any marketing campaign ever could. This is what their website, as of this afternoon, states as their guarantee. We make pieces that last, and if they don't, we want to know about it. L.L. himself always said that he didn't consider a sale complete until the goods are worn out and the customer still satisfied. That's the guarantee. The sale's not done till the item's worn out and you're still happy with it. Our guarantee is a handshake, a promise that we'll be fair to each other. So if something's not working or fitting or standing up to its task or lasting as long as you think it should, we'll take it back. We want to make sure we keep our guarantee the way it's always been for over a century. Our products are guaranteed to give 100% satisfaction in every way. Return anything purchased from us at any time if it proves otherwise. We do not want you to have anything from L.L. Bean that is not completely satisfactory. This is not a hidden policy either. It's stated on every receipt that is uh, given at an L.L. Bean store when you purchase something. And in fact, it's shown at least four times before you order online. So it's not something that some big secret, and I heard about it on a, nationally, uh, on a national podcast as they talked about it. Employees, have, they, they, they very carefully select employees to work their return counters. The return counters at L.L. Bean are a very special place to work because of their guarantee. And not everyone can work there. They go through a very careful vetting process because they train employees to work the, the return desk to have no reaction, to remain impassive, to remain impartial, showing no judgment to people whatsoever because they have a 100% satisfaction guarantee in every way. This has led to some great return stories by the returns departments of L.L. Bean. Because if you're not satisfied, you can return it. One lady came in and she had bags of twin, bed, twin bedding that she had purchased at L.L. Bean years ago. And the reason that she returned it is because she now bought a queen-size bed. She was no longer satisfied with her product. They returned it. One couple brought in a uh, broken living room chair that they had purchased not too long before. They had put it in the back of their truck and had not strapped it down carefully enough and it flew out of the back of the truck and broke. And they brought it back because they were not satisfied with the product. And L.L. Bean returned it. There was one old guy who came in and he had a small bag and he pulls out of the bag, he pulls out this uh, t-shirt, if it could be called that. You know, you've probably got a t-shirt that's like this t-shirt that you've had forever and despite what happens to it, you just can't get rid of it. This guy puts it on the counter, and they ask the same questions. When did you purchase this? He said, oh, about 40 years ago, a t-shirt. He said, I've really enjoyed it. It's been great, but the stitching's starting to come away in the armpit. (laughs) You know what they did? They returned it. One person brought in because they had sold some live Christmas wreaths, like They're actually green. They've just picked the wreaths and made them, and they brought it back because it turned brown. They returned it. (laughs) Try doing that to Joyce. (laughs) As word got out and it became more popular, then people began going to thrift stores and would be coming in with trash bags full of L.L. Bean clothing that they'd purchased for 50 cents or a dollar, coats for $5, and receiving credit for over $300 for those items. L.L. Bean returned them all. 
Although now they have asked thrift stores to put an X through the tag uh, just so they know it's from thrift clothing store. One lady brought in a dog collar. She was unsatisfied with it now because her dog had died. They returned it. There was a festival in Maine. 60,000 people showed up. And guess where they all stopped before they went to the field? They went to L.L. Bean. They bought tents. They bought sleeping bags. And a rainstorm ensued over the weekend. They returned everything that people brought back. They, they accepted sleeping bags that people were not satisfied with because they got wet in a rainstorm. One thing that L.L. Bean is famous for is their slippers. And one returns worker talked about the number of slippers that are returned. He said, and remember, workers have to remain impassive, impartial, and without judgment as they work the returns desk. This is what one guy said. These truly disintegrating pieces of animal hide and fur that have been exposed to their feet for years and years and years of wandering around. The hide is all shiny. The shearling is totally mustard color and damp and matted. And it smells like four years of somebody's toes. (laughs) And they put them in front of you and they say, I want to return these. And there's no question that you could ask that, that, that is reasonable for L.L. Bean. Like, don't you think you might have gotten enough use out of these to warrant buying some new ones? I mean, Nikes fall apart in a year, but you don't even ask to return those. You just look at them, your face is totally neutral, and their face is totally neutral. And you're going to both agree that the normal rules of retail interaction do not apply in this situation. Employees used to be allowed to try and make some judgment, but they ended that practice. This move wasn't just to make customers happy, but it was too hard on the staff to have to try and decide if this was a legitimate claim or not. It used to be that they would exclude items returned because of death, divorce, fire, or weight loss, but now they have accepted all those items again. So if you buy L.L. Bean and either gain or lose weight, you're no longer satisfied with your clothing, return it. You'll get your money back. There's numerous stories of people who bought L.L. Bean backpacks in the fifth grade and are still using from the same money... Their backpack in their 30s and 40s because they've just returned them every five years or so. Yet despite the crazy stories, L.L. Bean feels like this policy of accepting all returns has led to more notoriety than any marketing campaign could ever provide. And despite the undisclosed amount of returns, they won't reveal how much they lose in returned items. It's cheaper than a mass marketing campaign. Does the policy get abused? Absolutely. Does it seem like an antiquated form of business? Yes, especially in an internet age where you can get on eBay and buy lots of L.L. Bean clothing. But it's how they do business and how they want their company to be known, despite the fact that the policy may be abused. In their minds, they are willing to accept the abuse to engender loyalty amongst those who really believe in the brand and who appreciate the quality and business and the products supplied. In fact, they're willing to suffer the abuse of the policy by some to lift up its name in others' estimation. Because this policy has done something amongst their customers, it's spread a loyalty, even those who are willing to pay and not just return items every five years, it's spread a loyalty amongst their customers, and they feel like that is something that they could never purchase any other way. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. (laughs) We're going to look at a passage in 1 Peter. 
As uh, Peter talks to, uh, uh, as he's writing to uh, a group of people, and he talks to them, he mentions several things, and he begins this passage, it kind of cuts up in the middle of chapters, but he starts out this passage, and he's writing to the churches, and he wants to remind them, first of all, about who they are, that they are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar or set-apart people. And there's a reason that they are chosen, that they are a priesthood, a holy nation, and peculiar. There's one reason, that they should show forth the praises of Him who has done something for them. He's called them out of darkness into His marvelous light. And let me just say tonight that I'm thankful that God called me out of darkness into His marvelous light. That now that I can sit here or stand here tonight and be counted a part of the chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that has been set apart. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, just uh, the following verses, he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest, among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. He wants to make sure here, at the start, he's making sure that they realize that there's a difference between them and the world around them. They're chosen, they're royal, they're holy, they're peculiar. And then he calls them strangers and pilgrims. He wants to make sure that they understand that there's a distinct difference between them and the world around them. And this is at the start of some verses which bookend this chapter. He, he states clearly who they are. That you're supposed to be different by the works that you do. And then he ends this kind of passage that we're going to look at uh, very, for the rest of the night here, Brother Smith. And in 1 Peter 3.15 he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And this is a verse you may have heard before. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. How many of you have heard that verse? Be ready to give an answer to every man that asks you for the reason of the hope. Now, I would like that in my life. These, these two verses bookend these uh, verses found in Peter. And, and, and first of all, let me explain that the epistle of Peter falls under the category of general epistles in the New Testament. And these are books that are written to the church. They're called general epistles, not because they're general in topic, but because they're written to all churches, not just one church. They were written to no particular location because there's a reason they're written to no particular location. Because the church has been scattered at this point. These general epistles were written during a time of great persecution for the early church. And Peter wrote his books during the rule of Nero, who had him executed in 68 AD. So it's important for us to understand that brief context of when Peter is writing these letters. He is a man that is acquainted with persecution. He's acquainted with trials and unjustness. He's acquainted with a life that's not fair. And he's writing to people who knows what that feels like too. And he writes to them at the start of this passage. And he writes to them about their good works. You're called, you're set apart. And then he mentions their good works even in the middle of this awful, horrible time they're going through. That he expects them to continue in doing good works even in the middle of persecution and trial. And he tells them to raise their conversation or conduct out of the depths to which the Gentiles have taken it. The Gentiles are are not living right. And he says you need to raise your conduct out of that. In essence, he tells them to not act as the world acts. To not respond as the world responds. (laughs) And then on the other end, the last verse that we read, he tells them to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. And honestly, this is what I would like to see in my life. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes I find it hard to, to speak to people or, or to reach out to people. I would like for people to be able to see something in me and see so much of it that they ask me, what's different about you? I would like that. I would like to be different enough from the world that when people see me, they realize that there's something there. And Peter tells them they should see hope within you. They should see in the middle of all of the world of chaos and everything going on, they should see a hope within you. And a hope that's so strong that it's not just something internal, but it's something that people can actually see. And it makes them question, what is it that you have? And I want I want it. I would think it would be great to get to a point where people just ask me about God because they see something so different about my life. But in the middle of these, I want us to take us to the middle of these two verses, these two things, of knowing that you're set apart, of knowing that you're royal, of knowing all of this stuff, and then we come to the other end of it, that people see the hope in you, and and they see so much hope in you that they ask you about it. Your life is simply a witness with no word spoken. Because in the middle of doing good works and people seeing my hope is the process of how I get from one end to the other. And a lot of times we find in Scripture that we really don't like the process and this one is no different. Peter was a man who had a big mouth. You know that. We know that he had issues of, uh, of, of connectivity between his mouth and his brain. If you would, he had foot and mouth disease. He had issues of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And he said it rather loudly too. Look at your neighbor and see if they're... No, not really. Yet this man who was known for his words, both positively and negatively, because he was the guy that also stood up on the day of Pentecost and proclaimed the message of Acts 2.38 that we find. He describes something interesting, this man of words. He describes something interesting between these two ends. And that is that your actions, not your words, make the difference. Your actions, not your words, make the difference. And he deals with two specific words throughout these verses. Getting me from me knowing that God has saved me, that He has done something in my life, that He has changed me. And getting me to the point where people actually see that change in me. That's where we're going from. Is I know that God has done something in me over here. I know that I went to an altar. I know that I received something. I know that inside I'm different. And over here where people look at me and see that I'm different. That doesn't just happen. Okay? And so Peter takes us through this process and he tells us that the process involves my actions, not my words. And if you're in James class, you know the difference between just saying it and actually there's fruit of what you say. But there's two words that he talks about specifically in the middle. And the two words are submission and suffering. And he talks about being submitted in these passages in between and we don't have time to get in depth and do a verse study from uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12 all the way through 1 Peter chapter 3. (coughs) But the two words that keep coming up are submission and suffering. He talks about being submitted to those in authority, speaking of the government. And this passage uh, is probably going to get more and more relevant for you and I as we think about our country, the election we've just come through, and elections that are going to happen in the future. And Peter sums up his thoughts in this one verse in 1 Peter 2.17. He says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. He states quite simply that we must honor the king, not just with words, but through our actions. And this is the same word that's used when they talk about honoring your parents 
or how Jesus honored the Father. It's the same word that's used here. It's, 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 it's an important thing that we have to understand that there is submission that must be given even in issues of government. But I want you to remember, because in our, you know, we've come through this election and it's been, it's been a divisive election at the very least. And uh, no matter who won, there was going to be people upset. But I want you to remember who Peter was writing this to and who he was writing this about. He was writing to a people that were suffering persecution. And he was telling them to honor Nero. One of the most sadistic, psychotic rulers that ever lived in history. And that's proven by secular and uh, uh, any kind of history you want to look at. He was a psychopath. The man who would eventually execute Peter himself. He said, you know what? You need to honor the king. That's powerful words coming from somebody like that. It's one thing to say uh, from somebody that just hasn't gone through anything, but Peter tells him in the midst of, of living under some of the worst conditions known to man in history, he says, honor the king. He talks about submission in the workplace. He talks about servants and masters, and he talks about the role that that plays, or submission to government. He talks about submission in the workplace, that it doesn't really matter what's going on. He talks about submission with husbands and wives and their role in dealing with each other. He talks about how your witness of submission might be the greatest witness that you possess as you lived with a spouse that doesn't believe in the Lord. That your witness of submission is something that you have. When you're willing to submit yourself to someone who doesn't even believe in God, it shines a light upon the greatness of God himself. And this applies in our family, this applies in our workplace, that when I'm willing to submit myself to someone in authority, even if they don't believe in God, that submission shines a light upon the greatness of God in my life. And Peter talks about in each of these instances, the government, your work, your family, and in your relationships in general. He not only talks about, uh, about submission, but he talks about suffering. And he talks about submission in suffering. And this is not just general suffering that he is referring to, but he is talking about following what he said in verse 12, about doing good works. And all that is returned to you is evil. When you accept injustices, injustices and wrong done towards you, if you would, sitting down. And this is something that's, that's very powerful as we look at this, this uh, passage. That Peter is telling them how to take suffering in your life. And it's not just, uh, uh, he's talking specifically about injustices. When someone does something to you that's wrong and you know it's wrong, and you don't do anything about it. Now I know Brother Gene has been talking the last several weeks on Sundays and Wednesdays about offenses and stuff. And I'm not going to get in depth into all that. But I do want to touch on this for just a moment. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 19 we're going to read several verses here. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you are buffeted by your faults you shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Now what he's saying is, when you do something wrong, it's no big deal that you say, I'm willing to accept my punishment. I mean, that's easy to do because you did something wrong. But what he's talking about is when I do something right, and I get treated badly for it. When I do the right thing. And someone comes against me. That's what he's talking about. It's no big deal that you've accepted the punishment that you deserved. No, when you accept punishment that you don't deserve is what he's referring to. For even hereunto were ye called. 
Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. That one word in there, that word thankworthy, it literally means grace. For this is grace, if you want to read that verse 19. For this if is grace. You know what? It's important for me to understand that I must return grace in my life. That it's not enough for me just to simply receive grace into my life one day at an altar. It's not enough for me to repent and receive God's forgiveness and His grace working in my life, giving me what I don't deserve. But I must learn that I must now demonstrate through action His grace that He gave towards me. And He says, this is grace. When someone does you wrong and you accept it patiently. Now, I, you know... I'm like, every, well, I'm not like everyone else, and you're not like everyone else either. But how many of you, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's kind of a big thing today to say, well, I don't really care what anyone thinks, I'm going to do my thing. You know, because it, that, that independence, that being your own person is, is real important today. But it doesn't matter if you say you don't care what anybody thinks, just allow someone to just rip you up one side and down the other. Nobody likes that, even if you say, I don't care what anybody thinks. Nobody likes that. I don't like it when people say stuff to me that just, they're just goofy. No. (laughs) Nobody likes it when people uh, criticize or or say stuff to them. And especially when it's not, when it, it has no basis, it has no foundation, it's absolutely wrong. Nobody likes that. But yet I'm called to show grace in my life. That word patiently, I'm supposed to patiently endure. I'm supposed to stand, to endure, to persevere. Because this is acceptable with God. That word acceptable is the exact same word as as thankworthy. This is grace with God. He says, for this is grace demonstrated. If I accept suffering in my life when I, I haven't deserved anything, when I haven't done anything to deserve what's coming my way, he says, this is now grace with God. In essence, if I want to find grace with God, I must demonstrate grace in my own life. And this is how I do it. I give people something that they don't deserve in their life. So we're left with things. Because you know what, there's times in my life, there's times in your life when you've experienced circumstances, when you've experienced people saying things about you, doing things to you. And it's important for us to understand that we, really, there's a word that is not very common anymore, and it's something that's kind of gone by the wayside, it's called resiliency. And it's important for us to understand that as Christians, we might have to learn how to be resilient. We might have to learn how to allow things to... to uh, wash off of our back sometimes and not respond to certain situations. And remember, he's talked about different circumstances. He's talked about with government, when things come against you in that way. He's talked about uh, submission uh, in the workplace. Sometimes something happens in the workplace. He ta- he's talked about in the family and there's strife between husband and wife, the submission that happens there. And sometimes in a relationship, things are said that, that really don't need to be said. And, and it's easy for something to creep into that. But he says, you know what, when you endure that patiently, this develops great, this shows grace in your life and it allows you to receive grace into your life. So what am I, what am I supposed to do? The thing is, that's really frustrating, is that Christ left an example for us, we read in verse 21. 
You know, there's a lot of things in my own human nature that, that, that I would just rather do it a certain way. I would rather respond a certain way. But Peter tells us that Christ left us an example, and really it comes down to this. It's not about what I, I want to do in my own life. You know what? It's not even about what somebody else says I should do in my own life. You know, I have an example that I must look to, and it's Jesus Christ. Really, it comes down to, back to the title, your own personal return policy. You see, L.L. Bean has a policy that they will accept anything impassively, they will take it back, and they'll give you a refund on it. (laughs) Really, what this verse describes to me and how we're supposed to respond to things, it would be good if I go through L.L. Bean training, maybe, at the refund counter. (laughs) (laughs) because sometimes someone sets a a pair of sweaty, nasty, yellowed slippers in front of us, (laughs) and we want to say, are you kidding me? You're really saying that about me? (laughs) You're really going to do that after I did all of this for you, and you bring me a pair of sweaty slippers? (laughs) No, sometimes my own personal policy, I need to check it against the example. It's always annoying when my example is Jesus Christ because he did it so right, didn't he? And he did it so opposite of the way I like to respond many times. But you see, it's up to me that I must set my own personal return policy. We have an example of the return policy of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.23 says, Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. This is the pattern of my return policy or what it should be. He said when people revile, he revile not again. That means when people verbally assault you. And Jesus was verbally assaulted. I don't know if you've ever been uh, accused of anything in your life, but it's not fun to be accused of something even if you didn't do it. And you know what? I like to defend myself as much as the next person. (laughs) You know, some things are all right, but then they say, well, you did this and you did that. And what's the first thing you want to do? No, I didn't, and I got proof that I didn't. You know, you just, your back gets up. But it says that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, and this means circumstances happened to him. He was physically affected by things. Whether it caused him to be anxious or worried or or things began to happen to him, he threatened not when things began to physically affect him. And here's the difference. Here's the difference, I think, between what his example was and what you and I do many times. Is that verse says, he committed himself to the righteous judge. That's how he dealt with issues. That was his return policy. Is he simply accepted it and then left it all up to the righteous judge to decide whether it was right or not. Now see, this is very difficult for you and I. Because we believe that God is a righteous judge. We believe that. We believe that he's fair and he's a just God. We believe that he has mercy and grace working on his side. And and, and we know from scripture because, and, and we know from our own experience because we sit here today, if you've experienced salvation, you know that he is a righteous judge because there was nothing righteous in you. There was nothing deserving in you. And yet his blood covered enough and you received salvation in your life. You know that he's a righteous judge. You know he's righteous because you have a hope of heaven in your life. You have something to look forward to. That he, you, you deserve so much less, but because he's righteous, he gave you so much more. And we can believe that. We can believe that he's a righteous judge when it comes to salvation and forgiveness and repentance. But let suffering or something 
come our way that we don't really like or we think that we don't deserve. And you know what we like to do? Instead of what Jesus did, we like to take it out of the righteous judge's hands. You see, he committed himself to the righteous judge. He said, Lord, I'm placing it in your hands, and what happens, I'm committing it to you. But I I don't know about you, but myself, when something happens to me, I like to take a little bit of control back into my life. I like to say, you know what, I can't just leave it all to chance. I can't just let this continue on. I can't let this happen in my life. And we begin to pull it out of the righteous judge's hands. You know what, he's good enough to forgive my sins. He's good enough to shed his sinless blood for me. He's good enough to save my soul. He's a a fine, righteous judge for all that. But let me come under verbal attack from someone when I don't deserve it. And rumors start spreading. Whether it's through the phone or you've updated a little bit and it's through Snapchat and Facebook. You know what? I can't leave that in the righteous judge's hands. i got to do something about that. He's a righteous judge until I'm physically affected, until my family's in danger or something begins to happen that that begins to stress me out or worry me. And it's it's nothing of my own fault. In fact, it's all untrue. Something unjust happens to me. You know what? I feel like I need to do something about it. And I pull it out of the righteous judge's hands. You see, it's not just enough, though, (coughs) for me just to accept something. Because of the L.L. Bean counter, they don't just take your smelly slippers and your nasty backpack. They don't just take it from you, but they give something back. They have a return policy, an exchange policy. Sometimes we're good about accepting things and we just kind of keep it inside and, and I'm alright with them saying that. But, but to, to compound matters, to make things even worse, Peter tells us it's not enough just to take the reviling. It's not enough just to take the suffering. And remember who he's writing to. He's writing to people that are in severe persecution. But he writes in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love his brother, and be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called, that you should inherit a blessing. What Jesus exemplified for us as my own personal return policy is that I'm not called to return railing for railing, cursing for cursing, unjustness with unjustness, but I'm called to accept those things and to, in, in return, give blessing. You see, sometimes I can take the stuff that really is unjust. I'm pretty good about letting things wash off my back, and people say stuff all the time, it goes in one ear and out the other, <laughs> even when it's not supposed to. I'm all right with that. But sometimes I really don't want to bless them. (laughs) You see, I'm not called just to receive the smelly slippers. I'm called to give them the 55 bucks they paid in 1932 for them. Imagine the smell of those. And say, you know what? I know you're probably cheating the system, but it's the policy. Peter tells us, in fact, he uses this phrase, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called, that I am called to bless. That my return policy in my life is to accept the unjustness, to accept all of those things, and hand back over the counter blessing to those people. 
Just like the L.L. Bean return specialist, I'm called to be impartial, not pass judgment, and simply accept what's being given and return a blessing. I accept it because I know that I'm committing it to the righteous judge. I know that he's going to deal with it all someday. But I'm called to return a blessing for whatever it was, whether it was moral, whether it was right, whether it was just or not. We read all these verses about submission and suffering. I'm closing. I'm, I'm done. It's only 8 o'clock. I set my timer still. It's through all of these verses of submission and suffering uh, that I'm supposed to return these things. I'm supposed to accept these things in my life even when it's difficult, even when it's tough. And by the very nature and content of what he's talking about, there's a whole lot more in there. But the essence of it is, is accepting what comes my way by placing it in the righteous judge's hands and then returning blessing for whatever was given to me. It's after all of this that we come back to the verse that we read at the start. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, it's not till people see me returning my personal re- return policy in operation. It's not, it's not a bunch of... He could have listed a bunch of other stuff, but he says, when they see your submission in suffering, when they see you accepting unjustness into your life and returning blessing, that's when they see that God has done something in you. I wish there was another way for people to see God in me. I wish I could still spout off and say whatever I want when people do unjust things to me. But if I want people just to look at my life and say, you know what, there's something different about that person, I can pull that verse out of context and I can apply it to a lot of stuff if I want. I could apply that verse of of when they see me do this and, and pull another verse out of here. But Peter places it right after how I respond to unjustness done in my life. When people say stuff about me, when people do things to me, And I accept that into my life, place it in the righteous judge's hands, and then say, you know what? I bless you still. He says, that's when people begin to notice. Now, he doesn't say the people that you blessed will notice. (laughs) Because we like to think that as we bless them, they're going to receive the the, the heaps of coal upon their head, and they're going to see, oh, you've got God in your life. No, he doesn't say that it's the people that you bless. Just like in L.L. Bean, there's people that will constantly abuse the policy. But you know what? There's people that buy stuff at L.L. Bean and do it honestly simply because of the policy. And there's going to be people that see God in your life that may don't even know you. But because of your return policy, that I'm going to return blessing for whatever comes into my life, they're going to see God in your life. It, could, it may not be the co-worker that you've talked to for 10 years about God. It may not be that person. It may be somebody clear across somewhere else. But you know what? They've seen your return policy in action and they realize God is in their life. That's what I want in my life. Peter says we are a separate people, a royal priesthood, and the world sees that I am those things, that I am different from the world, not because I say that I'm different, not because I'm proclaiming it, but because I'm willing to follow an example that Jesus set and I'm willing to follow his pattern and accept those things into my life and return blessing for all of those. I want us to stand this evening. God has called us to follow a pattern and it's a difficult pattern, I must admit, of Jesus Christ.
It's not something that I achieve in an hour, in a day, in a year. It's something that I'm constantly striving for. And you know what? In the area of injustices, I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I think it's unjust. That I should have to be just and injustice. I think that's an injustice. I think I should be able to give people a piece of my mind when, it's, when, they're, when they're wrong as they always are. I think when people say things about me and it's not true, I should be able to defend myself. I mean, isn't that a right? Don't we have freedom of speech? Well, Jesus, when he was standing before Pilate, Pilate asked him, you got anything to say? He said, you know what, if I tell you something, you're just going to use it for earthly gain. I'm not saying anything. He's on the cross. And they, what, did they, what, did they, what did they mock him with? Why don't you call down angels? He was in physical danger. He said, why don't you call down angels? He didn't do it. He placed it in the righteous judge's hands. And you know what? From the cross, he blessed them by saying, Father, forgive them. Because they don't even know what they're doing. Now, sometimes I think I could hang on the cross. Sometimes I feel like a martyr and think I could hang on the cross. But help, uh, there's no way I'm going to bless them from the cross. <laughs> but he's called them to bless because I'm exchanging what they give for something else. I want us to pray this evening. Lord Jesus, we come before you. Lord, we're so thankful for your spirit. We're so thankful for your word. And Lord, I ask you that you would challenge us, God. Lord, that there's, there's things that we need to learn as we walk with you. Sometimes that go against our nature. And Lord, I ask you to help us to understand that in the midst of, of, of suffering and injustice and things that don't seem right, that Lord, you have set out a pattern for us. And Lord, though it may be difficult to fall in our life, you have lived it. You have set out the pattern. And Lord, I ask you to give us the strength to follow through, God. Lord, to, to have a return policy that's willing to accept those things, place them in your hands, and return blessing for those injustices and things done wrong in our life. Lord, I ask you to speak to my life, Lord, to challenge me, God. Lord, I want to do your will and purpose above all things, God. And the reason I want to do it, Lord, I want, to see, I want people to see the hope inside of me. I don't want it just to be an internal thing. But Lord, I want my actions to demonstrate the pattern that you set forth. I want my actions to demonstrate your blessing, your grace, your mercy, God. Lord, I want my actions to have the same thing, Lord, grace and mercy towards others. Even when they don't deserve it, Lord. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. The very definition of grace is giving you what you don't deserve. If I'm to demonstrate grace towards people, I can't give them what they deserve. Only what they don't deserve. I pray that God doesn't send people into my life that need grace this week. <laughs> but if He does, i got to remember, you know what? They may deserve it. But I've got to give them something they don't deserve, maybe a blessing in their life. Thank you for being here in church tonight.